0: Christ is Lord, Lord of all, weak made strong in the Savior's love. It is God's good purpose, as we'll see today, to confound our wisdom, to strengthen us in our weakness, to humble us in our pride. This morning, we're surrounded by news, not particularly today, but just in the, in the last year, in the last decade, really, in our lifetimes, we're always surrounded by news of scandals, whether they are sexual, political, even church scandals. And oftentimes, these scandals involve bringing the darkest of darkness in our world to light. They uncover the depth of our human depravity. They show our sin for the evil that it is. Scandalous acts are often hidden in secret, dark corners, whitewashed with lies and excuses. But at the end of the day, all of these things are uncovered for what they truly are. And that's what produces the scandal, the offense. A scandal is typically very bad news. It involves public outrage over a moral wrong done by someone in a position of authority or power. But what if I told you that the Christian gospel, the message of Jesus, the good news, is actually scandalous, a good scandal? You see, the Greek word that we get the word scandal from, uh, we actually showed up in our sermon series on Romans back in Romans 9. It was translated as Rock of Offense, and it was quoted um, Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The idea is that the gospel can trip us up. It is a, a message that offends our natural sense of fairness and justice. It celebrates what the world shames and when we evaluate the claims of Christianity, the claims of Christ himself from a worldly perspective, it really can be quite offensive, can't it? We seem to live in an age of outrage, don't we? And nothing is more outrageous to our culture, to our, the time that we live in, than saying that humans are sinners under the righteous wrath of a holy God. That's an outrageous claim to make today. That we need salvation, and that salvation comes by the way of a crucified Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the virgin-born son of God. It all sounds very outrageous to the world today. That this God-man who lived 2,000 years in the past was raised miraculously from the dead. He calls his followers to a life of radical self-denial promising them suffering and pain and persecution in this life, but also promising a future life of eternal joy, peace, and rest beyond the grave as they trust in him. It's outrageous to our culture today. Each one of those statements becoming increasingly unfamiliar to our culture and face increasing hostility from those outside Christian circles. Some of it may be even be labeled as hate speech. Soon enough, the gospel is scandalous, but this isn't new. Um, the gospel has always been this way. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. We'll start in verse eighteen. Might back up to seventeen, but we'll start. For now, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And today's message is about the scandalous good news of the cross. The summary I will put up on the screen here. Trusting a crucified Savior may seem foolish and weak to the world, but the cross perfectly displays God's wisdom, power, and glory. That's the summary today. There's going to be four parts to the sermon. Uh, A couple of them are longer than the end ones, so don't get too nervous if we've spent half of our time on the first half of the sermon. But the cross is scandalous because God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. The cross is scandalous because God's power is greater than our power. The cross is scandalous because God deserves all glory. And finally, the scandalous news of the cross is good news for you. That's where we're going. We'll start now by reading our text from 1 Corinthians 1. Let's back up to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. I'm going to pray because I feel much like Paul, that I'm here before you today in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and I want to present this word to you um, not eloquently, not powerfully, but with the unction of the Holy Spirit. Um, so let me, let me pray. Dear Lord, you know my weakness. Um, you know my frailty and my need. I ask that you would meet with us in this moment. Would you shatter our expectations For what you can do through the ministry of your word by the power of your spirit, not by my own knowledge or ability, but through your own power for your own glory. Ask, Lord, that you would shatter our sense of pride, that we would come to you in humble dependence on your Son and looking to him for our hope, for our salvation. For our strength, we ask all of this in His name, Amen. So first, the cross is scandalous. This is the first point because God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. Now, I could, I could uh, go on about maybe the what this looked like for uh, the Greeks, which Paul references here, uh, where he says that. The Greeks seek wisdom, but I think we know, right, the philosophers, the Greek, uh, you know, Stoic philosophers and, and others were, that's what they lived for, to, to think deep thoughts and to discourse and to have these interchanges where they had philosophical musings. That's what they valued, that's what they pursued. Now, the wisdom of the world looks different than that wisdom uh, today, it looks different. But it's worth considering the ways that the gospel message contradicts the wisdom of our age. Do you hear this? Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Now, Paul's talking in his age, but the same applies here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, both then and now? Yes. So what, what is the foolishness of today's human wisdom? I'm just going to briefly hit some things. Human wisdom says, God is made in man's image, not man made in God's image. In other words, God didn't didn't make man, but man created the concept of God. That's human wisdom today. Human wisdom says the world is merely material and humans are only mortal. Human wisdom says we know more than those before us are better than those before us, are making inevitable progress in the right direction. C.S. Lewis, by the way, called that chronological snobbery. I think we're better than those who came before us. Human wisdom claims that our deepest problems are external, outside of us, those people, my family, the liberals, or the conservatives, or chemical imbalances in my body. Human wisdom claims that solutions to all those problems can then be found through political action, through therapy, personality sorters, technology, medical advancements, behavior modification. Human wisdom says we're free to do whatever we want, however we want, with whomever we want, irrespective, regardless of other people's thoughts, desires, or needs, and regardless of God. God. The reality is there is a God who created us, who created you in his image, not the other way around. The reality is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He made all things, whether visible or invisible. There are real spiritual forces at work within our world that we cannot see. Satan is real. Demons are real. This is scandalous to say today. Spiritual warfare is real. And you have a soul that is destined for eternal life with God or eternal separation, condemnation by God. The reality is that God's truth remains tried and true, unchanged from the dawn of time, and we can't even figure out whether coffee or red wine are good or bad for us. <laughs> Scholarly studies are always back and forth on these things. Or what works to lose weight. You know, it's like, oh, there's all these fads, different, oh, well, this works, or no, try low carb, or try, uh, try calorie counting, or try this. There's so much that we don't know. I mean, as COVID pointed out, our knowledge, while often impressive, very impressive, is also extremely limited in some ways. And as much as our knowledge is limited, our wisdom is limited even more. We live in an, in an age of information at our fingertips is the vast resource of the internet. But we don't see how damaging it is us physically, emotionally, spiritually, to keep a constant IV drip of news, of push notifications, social media, entertainment, and all those things. The reality is we think we know our own problems based on our symptoms, but we often misdiagnose the underlying cause. It's like going on WebMD and like, here's what's wrong with me, like, oh my goodness, I have this really rare disease. I don't know how many of you do that sometimes. Uh, hypochondria, I have that. Um. (laughs) But you see, the problems aren't just the liberals or the conservatives or the trans people or the pro-lifers or the pro-choicers. The problem is that every part of our human nature is corrupted by the virus of sin. Our hearts deceive us. And because we get the problem wrong, we often look to the wrong places for treatment. Please hear me. Political action is not always bad it can be sometimes good but it will never save the world from division disunity immorality death and decay it might limit some of those things but and there's good reason to work toward that end i'm not saying that there's not but it won't fully and finally solve the deepest problems that we face you can make abortion illegal and we praise god for that for that victory but it won't change people's hearts. And you can make certain guns illegal, but it won't stop violent crime. I mean, please hear hear me saying, therapy isn't necessarily bad. It can't, counseling can be very good, can be helpful. But it won't stop you, won't give you the power from being selfish. It won't warm your affections for your spouse or cool your hot-headedness. It may help, but it won't fix you. Understanding yourself better, your thoughts, your ways of relating to people isn't necessarily bad, right? Those personality disorders could be maybe helpful, but it could also be super misleading and dangerous to kind of put yourself into a rigid type, like this is who I am and who I will always be. People change over time, for better or for worse. The reality is you are becoming more like Christ or more like the devil. Like, there is no neutral ground, folks. It's amazing to think, uh, I hear, hear this, you know, this isn't the person that, I, this isn't the man or this isn't the woman that I married. Of course it isn't. They change. People change. And figuring out the type of person that you are or the type of how you relate to people can be incredib- incredibly fatalistic, can't it? Like, this is who I am. This is, I'm not gonna change. Like, man, thank God that he changes people. Right? Amen. Amen. Technology can be a gift. Um, I recognize that. Like a good millennial, my home is filled with it. Um, but technology can also be incredibly frustrating. I can't even begin to count the number of times that Alexa plays the wrong song or hears my requ- doesn't hear my request to turn down or off the music or responds to things that weren't even addressed to her or it. Even now, someone watching the live stream is like frustrated because I've said the name that should not be named, and it's like talking to them, and they're trying to get it to shut up. Um, But in contrast to the dominant cultural view of personal freedom, that one can be and do whatever one wants, however one wants, stands the fact that our hearts are hopelessly enslaved to sin apart from Christ and bound to reap the due penalty for our sin, We've been given freedom to do what we desire, but our desire center is enslaved, imprisoned by a sin nature. Your will, your heart, whatever you want to call it, is incapable of choosing good apart from a work of God's grace. And you will reap the due penalty for sin, which is death. This is, the, this is so contrary to the wisdom of this world. The message of the cross stands in contrast to so much of what we deem as wise. And it seems so distant from the problems that we face in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, in our country. It doesn't seem like it could offer anything good for you today. If you're honest, don't you have those doubts sometimes? Like, how does this... How does this this ancient event have an impact on my life today in the 21st century but the cross of jesus is not merely an ancient bloody instrument of death it is god's ordained source of life and forgiveness and healing and, peace. and while it seems absurd that the gruesome death of a Jewish rabbi from a podunk town in Israel 2,000 years ago could make any difference in someone's life today, I can tell you that it does because it made a difference in the life of a five-year-old boy from Cleveland, Tennessee. And the cross makes all the difference in the world because of the one who hung on it who made the world. Jesus' cross is no ordinary thing. The message of the cross trips us up. It's scandalous. It offends us because there is really a God in whose image we were made, and we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. The cross is offensive because it claims scandalous, because it claims to offer us real eternal life after death, and we seem to doubt that. The cross is scandalous because it claims to be the answer to our deepest problems, which happen to be the corruption of our own hearts by sin. And the cross is scandalous because through it, Jesus frees us not to live as we want, but to live and serve him as we ought. And the cross is nothing short of a miracle of God's grace. It is the clearest picture of his love and his justice. It's the place where they intersect The cross was from the beginning of time, God's plan A. There was never a plan B. It has always been God's good purpose to redeem sinners through Jesus' shameful public execution on an old, rugged, wooden cross. And we can barely scratch the surface of God's wisdom and knowledge in ordaining this, but we hear it right here in the text. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Human wisdom, you don't know God. It pleased God. It was his desire through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's real salvation here, folks. It seems foolish to trust in a crucified Savior, but it is the wisdom of God. The cross is God's wisdom. It confounds our human wisdom. Point number two, the cross is scandalous because God's power is greater than our power. We see this here where he talks about the Jews demanding signs and the foolishness of God being wiser than men, the weakness of God stronger than men in verse 25. He also talks about the the power of, of the cross in verse 17 and in 18. It is the power of God to those being saved. And if we speak about it, if Paul were to to preach this in eloquent words of wisdom, it would empty the cross of its power. We'll look at that in a moment. But you know, we love power, don't we? Like we love displays of power. We love strength. So why we have strongman competitions, mixed martial arts, muscle cars, air shows. There's something awe-inspiring about those things. And in their best forms, right, it's because they point us to the almighty power of God. But unfortunately, not only do we love displays of strength and power, but we can never seem to quit fighting over who gets the positions of power. Whether it was the Cola Wars, do you, you guys even remember, I, I was like, Little, but my dad work, work, works still for Coca-Cola. And, you know, d- depending on what part of the country you're from, you know, it's Pepsi or or Coca-Cola, you know, that's cola wars. Or whether it's political wars or worship wars, people often fight to gain or keep power, don't they? I mean, you think about the January 6th committee and all that that's all over the news. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is on the news some people are rejoicing, and some people are weeping, and all people are angry. It seems, whatever the side, because no matter the the side that you take, both sides are pulling on this rope of power. And even Christians might be tempted to think that salvation, that hope, comes from putting the right people in power and the right laws in place. As we said earlier, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's easy to put our hopes in regulations and policies, and yes, those things might make a difference. We might work toward making real changes in the world that are in line with biblical convictions, but political action is not the hope of the world. And even when our preferred people are in power, we're still left with disunity and strife anger, and even hatred. Because the answer to our deepest problems that we face is a cross of reconciliation. Only the cross of Jesus can make one people out of many. That's what Ephesians 2 teaches, that the cross breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, yes, but also between people today, reconciling enemies. Um, many, many of you may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor who founded the uh, the anti-Nazi uh, confessing church during Hitler's regime. He wrote a book called Life Together. And it was about Christian community, about the church. And in it, he speaks of the unity found in the person and work of Christ. And I just want to quote a brief thing from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. Among men there is strife. He is our peace, says Paul of Jesus Christ. Without Christ there is discord between God and man and between man and man. Christ became the mediator and made peace with God and among men. Without Christ we should not know God. We should... We could not call upon him nor come to him, but without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy and for all eternity. You see, the expansion of this radically countercultural, blood-bought community of faith, love, grace, and truth The growth of Christ's church, that's what Jesus wanted. That's the commission that he gave us. Not political or social action, as good as those can be, but proclaiming the message of peace between God and man, between man and man, that Jesus has secured by his atoning death on a bloody cross. That's real power, proclaiming the gospel. Um, I, I, maybe you're familiar with these words from Acts 17, but the message of a, a suffering Savior, a crucified Christ risen from the dead, is what Paul proclaimed in Thessalonica that led the uh, the Jewish, I love this passage, it led the Jewish leaders to um, become jealous. It says, chapter 17, verse 5, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, a believer there, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. What kind of political action did the early church take? They proclaimed the good news of a different king. And that kind of action had more impact than you can even imagine, such that the Jewish leaders said, They're turning the world upside down. Like, I don't know about you, but we can go pick it, or we can go, like, protest or do whatever. But how much, how much does that really change? What does that do? It makes people angry. <laughs> does it turn the world upside down? Because that's what the gospel of Jesus does. It turns the world on its head. This culture capsizing, world inverting power that Christians are called to exercise is the proclamation of Christ as king. And Christ's being a king, that message comes with, of the crown comes with the message of the cross, that he atoned for our sins and was raised gloriously to life. That's the power that changes people's hearts. That's the power that can change the world. That's the power that we don't even recognize how, how much the, the power of the gospel has even impacted our culture. You think of the influence of Christianity on the the Roman Empire as it spread. It wasn't that they were trying to take positions of power. They were preaching the gospel. And it was changing lives. But seeking political or social power isn't the only temptation we, we face. Some people think that personal salvation or our personal hope is possible by using the right weight loss program or accountability software or recovery program, that if you dig deep enough, you can find the power, the inner strength to overcome your struggle with food, your struggle with lust, or with substance abuse. And in contrast to this is the, is the idea not that power comes from within, but that strength comes from Without. That Jesus died to set you free from the enslaving power of sin so that you could consider yourself dead to sin. So that you could pick up your cross daily and consider yourself crucified with Christ. The message of the cross says don't look to yourself for power or strength but look to Christ who died to break the power of sin and then Crucify your desires. That's not a popular message today. Deny yourself, right? Love yourself, trust yourself, follow your heart. Those are popular messages. But these words are power and wisdom for believers. And God's power is infinitely greater than our own. It brings real, real change. Listen, whether you're trying to find a sense of fulfillment from gaining followers or earning money, making good investment decisions, whether you're hustling to make a name for yourself or build a fortune or leave a legacy, as an influencer or an investor, whatever that looks like for you, the impact that you make on the, on the world will likely be relatively minimal and certainly momentary. Your riches won't go with you after you die. Your name will likely fade from memory, but the way of the cross is counterintuitive and unimpressive. It says, bring nothing but your need, your spiritual poverty, and you can gain eternal, lasting inheritance in heaven. Your name will be written on the Lamb's Book of Life. You will live forever. The reality is you can't always win the elections. You can't legislate morality. You can't expect tools to change your heart. You can't be popular or well-liked forever and you can't always predict the economy or control it, although we'd like to change the price of gas. It often seems that we're powerless to change the course of culture, ineffective at curbing the desires of our hearts and incapable of securing the peace that we long for. That's the bad news. But you know what the good news is? That the cross is God's power for real salvation. Did you hear that? Please, God, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 18, to us who are saved, being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. It appears weak, it appears to be a symbol of death, but the cross in God's wisdom secures our forgiveness, secures our salvation, our full and forever joy in the eternal life to come. And the gospel of Jesus crucified and raised again, has real power to change you today. So that if you're united to Christ by faith, you have a new ability to crucify your flesh, to have meaningful victory over sin, because Christ has crushed sin's power and dethroned its reign in your life. You are free. The gospel is scandalous because God's power is so much greater than your power he can do what you can't we need to lean into this power and the cross is scandalous point 3 because god deserves all glory this is related to to the wisdom and the power what paul is saying here right he gets there in in uh, chapter 2 a little bit more but but also we're going to see in in that verse 17 there's something to unpack. So I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. First, let's go to chapter 2. When Paul says that he came to the Corinthians, he decided to proclaim the gospel not with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verse 17, he echoes that same sentiment. But he says something astounding. He says... You can look back at verse 17 now. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that if Paul uses big words, like penal substitutionary atonement, that the cross doesn't have any actual power. No. No. It's not that the power of the cross is lessened if Paul used big words, but the eloquent presentation of the gospel can shift the focus from the message to the messenger. That's it. The gospel is deep. The gospel is rich. It's profound. You could fill library on library with books about Jesus. I know because I've bought, bought like a bunch of books They're in my office in my home and they're overflowing. But I didn't need to digest a whole library's worth of books to know the gospel. And you don't either. I didn't need an MDiv or a bachelor's or even a high school degree. I came to Christ as a five-year-old boy with very little knowledge, certainly very little wisdom. I knew that I was a sinner and I knew that Christ died to save sinners who confessed their sin and put their trust in him. That's it. You don't need any special knowledge or degree either. This is the message. Christ crucified. You see, God in his wisdom designed the means of salvation to require nothing more than a recognition of your spiritual poverty and need for him. This is very humbling, isn't it? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I I get that doesn't make it a one-time decision. It doesn't mean you just say a quick one-line prayer and you get a free out-of-hell card to cash in when it matters. That confession is just the beginning. It's just a starting point of commitment to Christ. I get that. But Paul is clear that the message of the cross is meant to humble us. It's not about how much faith you have, not about how long you've attended this church, not about if you founded the church, not about how much money you've given or how moral you are. Those things have their place, okay? I get it. You should experience growth in faith. You should be committed to to the gathering of believers. You should worship God through giving and strive to live a righteous, holy life, but you certainly can't boast about those things before God. In the presence of God, there is no boasting. We see this, verse 29, 28 and 29. God chose what is low, and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that, here's the purpose, no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is humbling. You don't take credit for your faith or your salvation. You can take credit for your sins that made your salvation necessary. I think Spurgeon or somebody said Something to, the, to that degree, but God deserves the glory for your salvation. Listen, the thief on the cross. What do you think he brought to the table? <laughs> he said, "I'm here for good reason, and we did, we shouldn't mock this guy because he's not here for good reason." And Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. That's humbling. No baptism, no church membership, no giving, no good living. The message of the cross can be offensive because it shatters our pride. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have a very deep problem with that, don't we? We want to be praised and recognized and celebrated for our achievements. We want to stand out, we want to look good, we want to be in the limelight. But consider that the cross of Jesus was a place of public shame and humiliation. It was degrading and dehumanizing that Jesus, stripped of clothing, beaten and bloody, was laid bare before the world, hung on a cross in weakness beneath a mocking sign that said Jesus, King of the Jews, the one who made the universe the one whose praise angels sang in heaven. Jesus left the glories of heaven for that cross. Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. A criminal's death. (laughs) The good news is that Jesus bore our shame humbled himself to the point of dying that public, shameful death on a cross so that your sins, ugly as they are, when exposed to the world, would be covered. That's a beautiful message. Your shame hidden, your guilt removed. That's incredible. But it should also humble you to think that the God of the universe humbled himself to save you. Jesus does that for you. Who are you to exalt yourself? Who am I to exalt myself? If Jesus humbled himself to that point. The cross is good news, but it also offends our sense of pride. It calls us to embrace the humility of Jesus, even as we accept this great grace. Our faith rests in the power of God, as he says in verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we ought to to trust in, the power of God. But our praise belongs to him, so that the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Humble as he was, Christ deserves all the glory. That could be offensive and scandalous to us today. And the final piece is really not about how the cross is scandalous, but how the scandalous cross is good news for you. This was brief, but verses 26 through about 31 of our passage today. Paul says, essentially, look at yourselves. Look at those of you who were called to follow Christ and consider how you came to Christ, in what state you were. The Corinthian church was comprised of largely unimpressive, unimportant people. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's that's encouraging to me because it means that the gospel is not just for the poor and powerless. He doesn't say that all of you are poor. All of you are not of noble birth. He says many. Not many powerful, not many noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise What is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, again, so that no one may boast. This is the good news. The message of the cross, as scandalous as it is, is that God chooses people with an entirely different criteria than the world chooses people. God exalts the lowly and he humbles the proud. He chooses people not on the the basis of their status or their greatness, but out of sheer grace, showing how great he is. This is marvelous good news. It's humbling, yes, but it's also exalting. Verse 30 says, Because of him, that is according to God's purpose and grace, you are in Christ Jesus, united to him. That's a profound statement. If you're united to Christ, if you're in Him, you're bound up with him, that means your death beca- his death becomes your death, His life becomes your life. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. The message of Jesus crucified, foolish as it sounds, is real wisdom from God. Jesus is your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. This is the best possible news for you, folks. You need Jesus to be your righteousness because you are by nature and choice a sinner, condemned by God's law and deserving God's wrath. You need Jesus to be your sanctification because you are on your own, not set apart, not pure or undefiled by the world. Your desires, your thoughts, your emotional life are often heavily influenced by your family, your culture, the civilization you inhabit. You look and sound like the world. Only Jesus can make you different. And you need Jesus to be your redemption because you are bound by sin and enslaved to its power. You need release and freedom, deliverance. You can't break free on your own. You need a savior. The scandalous message of the cross offends our sense of strength and wisdom and it wounds our pride, but it's really, really, really good news. The scandal, the offense of the gospel is that Jesus turns our value system upside down and inside out. For the weak and the foolish, for the poor and the powerless, the message of Jesus is life-altering because in the gospel, fools are wise, weak are strong, last are first, poor are rich, despised are cherished, rejected are embraced, debtors are heirs, and dead are alive. Can you believe that? Glory to God. But you might be sitting here today thinking I am, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not very smart. I don't look very impressive. I'm weak. My body is aging. Whatever your insecurity may be, the gospel is good news to you. Because God has chosen what is lowly in the world. What is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, he flips everything upside down. This is the message of Jesus that is life-altering. The world would have you believe that your weakness and need are to be avoided and that power and intelligence and riches and fame and beauty are to be sought at at all cost. It seems really too good to be true, doesn't it? But the cross of Jesus invites you to come as you are, weak and needy and unimpressive, poor and, and powerless. The gospel does not leave you where you are, though. It exalts the humble. It brings real life Real forgiveness, peace, joy, freedom, real wisdom, real power. Trusting a crucified Savior may seem absolutely foolish and weak to the world, but the cross perfectly displays God's wisdom, perfectly displays God's power, and perfectly displays God's glory. This is the scandal of the cross, and it's good news for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you choose us as unimpressive and lowly and weak and foolish and powerless as we are, And you bestow on us the riches of your grace. We confess that trusting in your son's death on a cross seems at times irrelevant, insignificant, in the midst of the challenges that we face, the problems that we have. But it makes all the difference, and we are grateful that you have entered into the brokenness of our world, and you have redeemed us by your grace. We thank you that though the world despises the cross of Christ, you have given us the most precious gift in it. Father, would you help us to cling to the cross today? Would we find in it real strength, real power, forgiveness, freedom, life? We ask all of this to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.